I, I don't believe in writer's block I, because um, because writer's block suggests to me that you're judging what you're doing. You shouldn't be judging it. You should just be pouring ideas out. And some of them are going to be, most of them are going to be terrible. But it doesn't stop you pouring them out. And, and you know, I have to be very disciplined about allowing every bad idea its day. Welcome to the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people, and find interesting ways to go off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk to Rolf Kent, who is one of the most sought-after film composers in Hollywood. The first half of our conversation amounts to a kind of laid-back TED Talk about what it's like to write music for movies and how music enhances the cinematic experience. And in the second half, Rolf opens up about his creative process and shares tips which, to me, feel relevant to all manner of creative work. He's also offering some free music to listeners of the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. More on that in a second. For now, I'll share a little story about what happened at the Tallgrass Film Festival some years ago when Rolf was one of the guests of honor at that event. Since this festival is near my home in Kansas, and since Rolf is an old friend, I got to hang out with him there. And for the first couple of days, nobody at the festival really recognized him. That is, until the festival screened an eight-minute montage of his TV and movie compositions, including this one. Which you might recognize as the theme from Dexter, which was nominated for an Emmy. And this one from Sideways... which was nominated for a Golden Globe. It was amazing to see the audience react when they heard Rolf's music, and he went from being a somewhat anonymous face in the crowd to this sudden celebrity at the festival who, using music, had created all these iconic emotional moments in movies that people recognized, ranging from about Schmidt and up in the air to Legally Blonde and The Wedding Crashers. Today I talk with Rolf Kent about why exactly music is so important in building the emotional narrative of a movie, we talk about how even though he's one of the most respected composers in Hollywood, he often has to throw out great work simply because music has to serve the precise needs of story rather than his own aesthetic ends. We talk a bit about how technology has changed the way we experience music. We also talk about writer's block and how he thinks it's bullshit. We talk about the joys and challenges of pushing yourself to keep inventing fresh ideas well into your career. We talk about the role of accident and creativity and working against rules and expectations to find something truly original. We talk about why singing in the shower is so enjoyable and why Rolf has made strategic use of a simple egg timer to bring focus and self-discipline into his work. We cover a lot of ground and mention a lot of specifics, so if you want to know more about, say, the Morning Pages exercise or Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies exercise, check the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. As I mentioned before, Rolf is offering free music to listeners of this podcast. It's a track from The Zen Effect, his album of ambitones, or experimental drone music, which I often use myself as background music while I'm writing, since it has a way of taming my monkey brain. Other people use it for meditation, or ambient music, or just relaxation. Actually, Rolf is curious to know how people have been using it, so if you download the track or buy one of the Zen Effect albums, be sure to drop him a line and tell him how exactly you've been using it. A link to this music is also in the show notes. Again, that's rolfpotts.com slash deviate. We'll listen to a bit of that Zen Effect music at the end of this episode, but for now, let's listen to Rolf himself, recorded in person last month 
in his studio in Los Angeles. Well, I'm talking to uh, Rolf Kent, and he is a film score composer, although I know him primarily as a Rolf, and, and oftentimes I will go for weeks or months at a time without f with forgetting him at, that he is this um, um, highly professional film score composer, and to me he's just uh, this guy named Rolf, because we met because we're Rolfs. I'm a Rolf and you're a Rolf. Do you remember how we met? It's been like uh, 14 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, our, our mutual Rolf friend, um, uh, I'll be seeing him very soon, actually. He's coming okay. to town in a couple of weeks. Fantastic, yeah. It was 2004? Was that when we met? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think it was. It's definitely been more than 10 years ago. And I think when you have three Rolfs at a party, I've been at a party with three Rolfs once, and it was the party with you and, and Rolf Gibbs. And, um, and you can't not hang out with your fellow Rolfs uh, if your name is Rolf. There's just not that many Rolfs in the world, at least outside of Norway or you, something. You are like my that. second, uh, yeah. You and Gibbs. Y yeah, that was he was my first. Okay. Yeah. I went to high school with the Rolf, uh, no junior high with the Rolf, but there's just not very many of them. Uh, so you are um, you had a lifetime achievement award already. Let's not call it a lifetime achievement award. Okay. Let's call it a um, an encouragement to do to do even better. Gotcha, and or that's something. from BMI. Yeah, well, that's, that's which stands for British Broadcast Music Inc. Okay, nothing which British is... about it. No, it's a it's a okay. It's a royalty uh, collecting organization. So when they give you a war, a war <laughs> when you get an award from a royal, from a business that's entirely about business, it's nothing to do with creativity. It is to do with um, uh, that you've you've made some royalties, and they're happy to they're hoping to keep you. Okay. Well, by American standards, and you're not born American, although you're naturalized, is that mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, that's very American of you to have been successful royalty-wise, financially, and to have a number of small trophies, which I've seen in various parts of your house, mostly restrooms, um, <laughs> speaking to your BMI awards. Uh, you've also been uh, Emmy-nominated, Golden Globe-nominated. Uh, you've worked for uh, directors such as uh, Jason Reitman and Alexander Payne. How would you explain to the lay person, we're sitting in your studio, which has how many instruments are, is in the studio? Well, I don't know, but I mean, it's in, it's in the sort of... 500, maybe? 400? <laughs> Nothing like that. Okay. Although, you know, I think you've... Uh, but, but, but quite a few. The walls are, are covered with, uh, with different instruments, from the very small to, um, to the piano. The piano is the biggest thing in here. But um, lots of ukuleles and ukulele-related kind of things, lots of percussion, uh, quite a lot of ethnic flutes and whistles and recorders and wordy tubes, and, um, and lots of percussion, lots of shakers and uh, a few jam jars full of beaters for the uh, percussion, and some violins. Uh, one, two, three, four. At least three violins. And for, you, for those of you listening at home, when he gets a little bit louder, he's turning his head to the left, and, and that's coming through on the lav mic. We're also sitting in your studio with some weird microphone that has two, like, latex-looking human ears, and it is concurrently recording this conversation. And I guess we'll have to make a choice between which digital file we'll use, but can you explain this to me? I've never seen a microphone that approximates 
human ears. Oh, no, but I think at this particular point in the interview, you should switch over to the, the, let's assume you're going to switch over to the binaural mic. And so a binaural mic, anyone who's into um, AV, uh, AV, is it AV? Uh, augmented reality, so AR and... Um, and, AI uh, and uh, not I don't know AI um, and games and stuff like that. So the, uh, binaural means um, that the sound is recorded as if through th human ears, and so you get a sort of a three sixty representation. It, it sounds very lifelike. That's the point. So if you uh, if you if we have switched over to these microphones, well, for for the, for the purpose of of post production, yeah, this is us talking in. Uh, with the lav mic that I typically use for interviews. Right. And then we, we'll switch over with the snap of a finger. You're better snapping your fingers snaps. than me. Uh, right. To and, the binaural mic. And now we're in the binaural mic, which is, should be, is positioned um, you know, as if you're our friend over to uh, my right and Rob's left. Um, so this is, this is, you should be getting a bit of the ambience of the room and um, quite a strong sense as to where Rolf and I are sitting. And probably there'll be a post-production decision when we just decide to choose one or the other based on uh, on how they sound. Well, we'll see, but uh, and if I if I whisper in this ear, I'm just going to whisper in your ear, and it should sound rather disturbingly close. This there is weird go. because Rolf is standing in a room in Los Angeles, getting closer and closer to this sort of ear-shaped uh, thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what you would compare it to, and you know, like from a mannequin or something. And so, I, actually, I'll do a similar sound experiment where I'll just talk, 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 talk. If you're wearing, if, if dear audience member, you're listening on headphones, that may be a little alarming. It should be a little alarming. Yeah. Well, this is all new to me, and um, this is maybe an idiosyncratic way to start the conversation. But we're actually dealing with someone who works with sounds for a living and the textures of sounds mm. and the composition of music oh, yeah? uh, to augment. <laughs> Who are we going to be talking about? <laughs> to, to, to augment en entertainment. Um, and at that point, a sound effect is necessary. That's true. And we're also drinking bullet bourbon and you uh, mixed yours with ginger ale? A little ginger ale. Okay. And some ice. Um, and so... Real quick before we move on, I want you to explain what you do for the layman because I know that there's a very technical way uh, in which you interact and, and make basically underscore the mood and emotion of movies. Um, but like, is this a typical studio or is this very unique to Rolf Kent? I mean, you have a lot of international instruments, you have a lot of stringed instruments and little shaky, rhythmy things. Does uh, you know? I would say this is not uh, not astonishing for to to other people who do what I do. This this is not astonishing. It may be rather less tidy than uh, other people uh, use, and um, and a bit more cluttered. And some people have no instruments; they just use the computer and the keyboard. And um, and some people have large collections of instruments. Um, I'm somewhere I'm somewhere in between. I think it's um, but it's it's um, it's comfortable. It's comfortable, and it means there's always something to grab and be inspired by. And the um, so to describe what I do, uh, basically, if you've uh, very few people have ever seen a film without the music on it, and uh, the music gets past your filters, so um, it can adjust 
the emotional response you are having as an audience member without you really knowing it's the music. So a lot of people will not really know that the music was having much of an impact. They enjoyed the film. Maybe they were, you know, maybe it took them to some emotional heights of ecstasy or sadness or excitement. But they won't know how big a role in that equation the music played. So, so just to jump in, you're, you're doing the score. So you're not the Celine Dion writing the pop song to go with the music. Correct. I'm not doing any of the songs. I'm not even, generally not even asked about the songs. Um, the, uh, the, the, I am just doing the underscore, which, you know, if you think of it as the or orchestra that goes behind films, but it's obviously not always orchestra. And if you think of, you know, Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, Vangelis didn't use any orchestra it was all synths but still it's that it is the uh, the the music that goes behind everything um, without it being song so it is very involved in adjusting the way we experience the story and um, I sometimes think of it as pay, uh, you know, making sure that the book is a page turner you know you don't want people to get asleep fall asleep during the film you want them to wonder what's going to happen next so music can be full of questions it can be sort of leading you to you know adding mystery adding uh, energy adding um, and certainly adding an amplifying emotion and uh, or bringing in an emotion that wasn't there ever before sometimes sometimes you know the the film was shot but there was no chemistry between the the, the actors playing the lovers so they turned to the music and said can, can you please get some chemistry here and, um, and that's sort of, you know, within the remit of what music can do. It can, it can radically change the nature of a, a movie experience, but the audience pretty much never realizes how big a role that is. But if you watch a movie with the sound off, then obviously you're not getting any dialogue or any sound effects, but uh, it often looks a bit absurd and very flat. So the, so the sort of the board looking to the middle distance in the actor who has no chemistry, it's your job to make that a look of orgasmic joy. Absolutely, or you know, great tension, you know, mm. or, or mystery, or wonder. Um, so yeah, that is that's my job. I do the music, which you know, uh, ninety-eight percent of the time, when people know a film I've worked on, they will go, "Oh yeah, I don't remember the music," and I, you know, I, I do not care. I mean, I don't need you to remember the music, but. Sometimes you will. Sometimes you'll remember a theme. I mean, I, uh, uh, when people say, Shouldn't, isn't the music supposed to be not noticed? And I, and I respond by suggesting that if you didn't notice the music to James Bond or to um, Star Wars, you'd think that there was something missing because those themes, or Mission Impossible, those themes are crucial. They, they, they are what get us all hyped up and charged up. So sometimes the music, you want to notice it, sometimes you don't. Is a great film score distinguished by its ability to be ignored or by its ability to be remembered? I mean, when you, because in a way you don't want, as it's not your job to, to take over the movie. It's your job to underscore what's happening in the movie. So, well, that, but, ah, well, that's that's. I, I I slightly disagree with that. In that, uh, I'm a participant in the film, so I'm, my job is not to to do nothing. To merely, you see, when you say underscore, if you think of underscoring on a piece of paper, all you're doing is underlining. That is not my job. My job is to uh, to change the font, change the size of some words. Um, 
uh, undermine some of the words, um, put lines through, you know, put the lines through, you know, to, to add um, and, and to add tons of footnotes. So you may be watching a uh, romantic scene, but um, in thinking about the whole story, you know that in fact one of these lovers is going to be, uh, is actually a spy. And you wanted to slightly hint that not all is right with this scene. So that's not simply making the scene more of what it already is. That is bringing in an element which did not exist before. And you're just going, there is something else going on here. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but wait and, wait and find out. So absolutely, we call it underscore, but it's nothing, it's not just underlining what's already there. It is absolutely a participant, a participation in it. And, um, and I particularly like being um, characterful. So, um, so that, you know, I, I, I find myself really expressing a lot of personality of my own in the way that the stories get told um, and in the music that uh, is used to do that. So it's, um, so we, yeah, we, um, it's, it's definitely a participation in the storytelling process. Just, just as a photographer is not just photographing blandly and without participation. The, the, the director of photography is um, very deliberately choosing a shot because it heightens something. And you come in pretty late in the process because I sort of think of this as a writer. That's my milieu. The writer puts words on paper and then that's very much, um, unless it's commissioned, I guess it's, it's the beginning point of the motion picture. Whereas you come in, the director of photography has done his job, the director has done his job, the actors, everybody else. Even the editors, I presume, yeah, and editors are, uh, are well on the way to being finished. Yeah, so I'm very much the last, the last creative thing that happens on a film. Interesting. So you're sort of the other bookend to the to the writer in a certain sense of of telling this story. And yeah, and um, absolutely. In terms of authorship, the the writer gets to author the script, and I get to author the score. And uh, in between whiles, uh, it's all a manifestation of of uh, the script's authorship. Yeah. Now it's your job is probably not a. Um, I mean, by by the standards of film score composers, you're a star. I mean, you're you're uh, a uh, established, serious, major um, composer who's worked with a lot of great directors. But so far, no groupies have been trying to break into your studio. Um, do why fans? Do you, why do you have to? Why do you have to tell me how sad my life is? Well, in, in a way, it's it, it feels like a pretty sane part of the Hollywood process is that you can do something you love. Do you have groupies? Ooh. Well, actually, that I'm going to turn that around. Do you have groupies? I mean, your how do your fans find you? And I mean, do you I have fans? I know you have groupies. I've been with you at a boots and all thing. You, you there is definitely you definitely have a fan base. Right, I have a fan base, and then, and then but travel writing is very uh, authorial and, um, you know, even nonfiction authors, it's a single author thing. The product is associated with you. And yeah. so um, when my book comes out, I'm the guy people look to. When your movies or the movies you're involved with come out, you know, they might be looking at Alexander Payne or, yeah, yeah. Thank or God Jason it's not me. Bateman yeah. or, or something else. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what kind of fans do you have? I mean, what, what kind of people are so attuned to the sonic textures of a movie that that um they seek you out they, uh, you know the the film the film music fans uh it's not it's it's 
pretty hardcore. It's not a huge audience, but it's uh, very, um, very, very hardcore about movie scores. I mean, I, very occasionally I find myself at a signing and people will bring, you know, a, a 10 CDs from the you know, 90s that they want me to sign. And you go, well, these films, they were, for, in my mind, they were forgotten, you know, 20 years ago. And they, uh, they go, yeah, oh, favorite, one of my favorites. And they sort of push this thing in front of you, which is, um, it's uh, intriguing. Um, yeah. Well, that brings up an interesting question, which is, um, you know, when I, when I describe you to um, my friends, when I say I'm going to hang out in Paris or Los Angeles or wherever with my friend Rolf Kent, I say, oh, yeah, he did the score for for Sideways or the theme music for Dexter or something else. Well, there's an extent to which, and those are, that, that was your Emmy project and your Golden Globe project, or you're mm -hmm. nominated for both. But in a way, your, those accolades sort of come in the wake of the movie. You know, if, if, if Dexter had not been, had been a, you know, one season and gone, or if Sideways had not been a successful movie on its own, how would that been been received music wise? I mean, do you have a music that you're? Is there a a a movie that sort of flopped in the '90s uh, that you are super proud of the music for? I mean, it, are you are you doomed, for lack of a better word, to be recognized for music in the wake of movies that are successful for other reasons? Well, you think about. I mean, yeah, but I mean, like you, are, the Oscars only go to commercially successful films. So right. there are lots of. I, I remember hearing that Chris Young, who uh, Christopher Young wrote tons of fantastic uh, movie scores, and um, uh, he said he'd written. Five, <laughs> apparently, he said he'd written five Oscar-winning scores for films that no one saw. Um, you know, you you do this. You know, you you put your heart and soul in it. You the the work goes out, and it uh, if the film flops, then you know, now the film score fans, they may find it and they may just think this is one of your best ever scores. Um, you know, I, I'm very proud of The Hunting Party, uh, a film that Richard Shepard directed and it stars um, Terence Howard and uh, Richard Gere and I really like the score. But the film, you know, I, I'd be surprised how, you know, if many people had heard of it. Um, but they, I'm very happy with the score and... Uh, uh, someone recently sort of approached me to get one signed because they said it was, you know, they, it was a favorite of theirs. But um, but yeah, no, those things. Um, it's just the, you know the nature of the business that uh, you you may feel like you did your best work, but if the audience doesn't find it, then um, then it doesn't really matter. It's never going to get any recognition. In in a way, uh, your fans are almost maybe the best arbiter musically. You know, it, because it sounds like the people who are fans of your work. Are really into music, um, yeah, and, maybe, and that's, that's certainly true. Yeah, and that the person who is just going to watch a movie because Brad Pitt or Scarlett Johansson is in it is not going to identify that. So in a way, that is your Oscars. You know, that somebody who they can identify musical excellence um, that may have been missed because it didn't because a given movie didn't have the same distribution based on sure. factors that had nothing to do with you. Right. Another interesting thing about your career, and I think I might preface it by your background, and I don't want to go too far into your background because that information is available in many places. I mean, you're, you're sort of self-taught. You were a psychology major mm -hmm. in, in, in college back yep. in the day, never classically trained as a musician. Correct. And if I remember correctly, you've always wanted to do this. I mean, you didn't, you didn't pick up music 
to be a rock star, but you picked up music because you wanted to write music for m movies. Am I correct in that characterization? Well, at the age of five, I didn't really get my mind around that. I picked up music at five because I really just had to. I just, you know, had that hunger. And, um, uh, but at 12, at 12, I wanted to do movie scores, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's even before many people are even thinking of rock bands. And so you've been doing what you dreamt of your whole life. I mean, this, oh, yeah. you're doing what you what you wanted to do. Absolutely, yeah. And I've heard you uh, characterize before, like your early influences or scores that really appeal to you are like Lawrence of Arabia and The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. And, uh, and James Bond, of course. Right. The, uh, John Barry was a huge, uh, I, I was a huge fan of John Barry, uh, who wrote all that early Bond music. That's interesting. I don't know him by name. I know Morricone is, um, is like sort of the, the signature composer. I see. Um, yeah. You know, I think people know him very John well. John Barry's a pretty big name. He wrote uh, Out of Africa, Dances with Wolves. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, he, he wrote the first, uh, he scored the first 11 Bond films. Well, that, that maybe shows my ignorance a little bit. Who, was, who scored uh, Lawrence of Arabia? Maurice Shah. Okay. He was really young at the time. Apparently, he wasn't even supposed to be the guy on it. But uh, whoever that was wasn't finding it. And um, Maurice Shah stepped in at the last minute and uh, wrote an incredible, I mean, memorable, epic score. And, and a really beautiful one. I've met people. That's, I think that's an example of a movie where people, um, the music is one of the things that they really remember about it. And I, I think you can say that about James Bond and Star Wars too. But I met an Italian guy in Thailand um, who would listen to that music, the Lawrence of Arabian music, uh, at home. It just it filled him somehow. Um, well, it, it was written with a, a sort of, it's an almost operatic in its scale. It has an overture. Which, which, which is played before the curtains open uh, at the cinema. So I don't know any other film that hmm. has an overture. And then it has an entr'acte, which is, there is, you know, the film is three hours long, so they put in a, um, an intermission, which is scored. The intermission has a, an original score by Maurice Shah to keep, you, keep, it, keep it going. I mean, that's really, really um, bumping the musical aspect of the movie forward when you have yeah. an intermission and a... And an overture. And an overture. Uh, and so that's operatic. How would you characterize the good, the bad, and the ugly? Oh, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's sort a, of it's, minimalist, maybe? It's so iconic. I mean, yeah. apparently uh, Ennio Morricone was a record producer, which is you know, similar to John Barry. John Barry had some hits with uh, the John Barry Seven, which was a sort of his little band. And um, they both got sort of summoned into film music because uh, film decided it wasn't hip and groovy and they thought maybe records people could make it make film music better and, um, and when you when you know that and then you listen to the early Morricone stuff where it's not a big orchestra but they're doing some very cool and interesting things like you know the solo whistler lots, lots of people going ho ha and you know interesting very record producery kind of ideas and then it all makes sense that's where he came from um, nowadays he still just writes these big or, you know, string arrangements, but, uh, but back then it was very inventive. I guess one reason I mention all this is these are influences, yet you have an interesting dichotomy to your reputation in that you are, there's sort of these indie darlings that you write music for, uh, like Alexander Payne and Jason Reitman. But then there's also these, there's like you did Legally Blonde, you did Mean Girls, you did The Wedding Crashers, which are more mainstream quirky comedy type things. 
So like, do you have a sound? Do you, and, and, and none of them are anthemic, you know, by reputation in the ways of Lawrence of Arabia or, um, you know, Morricone experimental type things. So how did you come into your own aesthetic and how would you even describe your own aesthetic as a, as a film composer? Uh, early on, my, my agent in London suggested, he heard one thing I did, which was you know, marimbas and strings. And he was going, you should just do that. You should just do that because you know, that, that'll become your sound. And I'm going, I'm not, I'm not going to box myself in, you know, especially at the beginning of one's career. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of you know, what people end up thinking is my sound, I, you know, I, I, I never sought to create a signature sound. But uh, the way I thought of it, actually, and everyone else may completely disagree, but I always thought about it in terms of the, the way you juxtapose against the image. So uh, if you've got a love scene and then you, you do something completely different, you know, you invade the pitch is what I like to call it, which is, uh, you know, when, when a cricket match is, is nearly over and all the fans invade the pitch. Um, I, that's what I, I think, you know, the film exists not to be treated as precious, but to be invaded. And um, so uh, it's the way in which you invade the pitch that's, uh, that I thought and sometimes think is my signature, but I don't actually know how, whether I have a sound per se. I've, I have heard other composers being told they were asked to do something like Rolf Kent would do, hmm. but I don't even know what that means. Well, it's, I mean, you have a lot of... Something bad, probably. Wacky, <laughs> comedy-ish stuff. And even... And correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost feels like there's the humorous elements of a film like Sideways are underscored by the, the film, or even by those juxtapositions where there's this depressed person and sort of this cheery jazz going on, um, or things are spiraling downwards in, in, in Sideways, yet the, the music is hovering above in, in this seemingly cheerful way. Yeah, well, you're just looking for the story and what is going to tell the story in the best way. And um, it is not simply to say, you know, now we're on page seven. It's to say... Uh, we're on page seven, but goodness, this, this looks like something which is going to come back on page 27. Oh, did I say anything? No. <laughs> and then, then you just sort of pique people's curiosity or something like that. Also, quite often, I will write the main theme complete for late in the film. And then before that, you will start getting hints of that main theme so that that thematic material feels like it keeps on developing and developing and developing and then when you get to that climactic moment it arrives full force and you go oh now it feels very satisfying because you've been teased all the way along and then it arrives and um, it all makes sense and um, yeah. is, is that a thing i mean is that just sort of a tool that you have is is um hinting at a theme and then culminating is that is yeah, that yeah absolutely it's a, absolutely a tool i um uh you know co co you know there's this idea in hollywood that movies are in three acts and you know you have the you you, in, you introduce the characters um and their dilemma in the first act you then have um uh, struggle with the dilemma in the second act and then you have the decision is made that's going to you know take it home the classic that, Sid Field structure. Yeah, and, um, and that is the beginning of the third act. And um, that often is the point at which everything changes. And so, you know, it used to be, I, I don't feel like I do it quite so much, but it used to be I would go straight there and just, what is the thing that changes everything? And if, we, if there is something, you know, the point at which he, he just realizes he was in love with her all along, 
then you just go and then bang you can if you manage to secure and, and, it, and often those moments were the moments that needed music they needed a big statement in music so by doing that by by establishing that big moment then you have material that can be hinted at and um, you can start sort of navigating your path through the film so to that point. Do you work backwards then from, from that, that musical epiphany? Do you work backwards? And no, I don't. I mean, to be honest, I, 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 I popcorn around. I, um, but, uh, but in terms of looking for the big, you know, it, it's, films aren't full of moments for big themes. So if you can find the moments that needed the big themes, that's the time you get to actually play a tune from beginning to end. You may never get to play the tune from beginning to end anywhere else in the film, but you can give um, a few bars of it. So, and, um, so once, you, once you know what your big themes are, then I can popcorn around the film and just go, I f today I feel like doing this bit. And, um, but you, you know, I have my library at that point of ideas which are already working at one point in the film, so I can use them as, um, as a palette to draw from. You mentioned earlier that um, now other composers are being told to sort of affect a Rolf Kent texture. I wouldn't um, say it's a <laughs> I don't know that it's a common thing. I've heard it once or twice. Well, the fact that it, that is a thing means that there's a certain sound that is expected of you. Yet it, it's funny, when, when I, was, I was reading something about you recently and I saw the word, what I thought was Batman, and I thought, Rolf? Rolf did a Batman score? Well, it was Bateman, you know, it was, it was, oh, yeah. it was an actor in the movie. Could you, I mean, do you have ambitions or would it be within your purview to write like a big superhero movie score? Is that something you're interested in? Or, is, or are you happy in sort of the more comedic and um, oh, I, or no, dark I drama things that you've done before? The, the next film, the, the, my, my, my best, if I, if my ideal is to be given something that has nothing to do with the thing I just did. So if I just finished... Uh, an epic love story. My, the next thing I would like to do would be, um, you know, an ironic political drama. And then the one thing, the thing I'd like to do after that would be um, an action, a big action film. And then the one after that would be, you know, something else. Uh, so, so if somebody came and said, we want you to do, um, you know, Rocky 12 or Leap, you know, Lethal Weapon 17 or something, like well, a, a yeah, big franchise, you, I, Superman 70. I'd love to be at the beginning of a franchise. That would, okay. be, that would be ideal. Um, uh, the, because your movies, your, your body of work seems, it's all very unique. I mean, you don't really, I mean, you've had some well, sequels, but... I, I think that's why I don't generally get, uh, don't yet get offered those big um, action films is because they don't want unique they want uh something which fits the mold and certainly if you've got a film with a number after it you're probably looking for something that uh the mold is probably very set and um you're just trying to look for something that um that isn't looking for uh some bizarre or um subversive uh twist and um you know i i, I a director fairly recently asked me, really wanted me to do this film. There were spies in it and all this, and uh, he really wanted me to do it. And um, the studio just refused. And the, uh, and the director went, I think they think that you and I are gonna get together and get up to mischief. And I said, 
They are absolutely right. That is exactly what you and I would do. And, um, and they want a generic approach. Well, I, I am not their guy. I don't, I, I don't want to be their guy. I would love to see that actually, is that just like take a James Bond movie or, or any long franchise and sort of use that counterpoint you were talking about sort of to, to dig in because, I mean, that's even something in creative writing that happens at a, at a sentence level. Somebody smiling happily is somebody different than somebody smiling sadly, right? Right. And so you push against what the other current of the narrative is doing and that's part of what you get to have fun with. Right. I mean, I think, you know, Air Force One had a score originally by um, Randy Newman. And, you know, as we may be aware, Randy Newman has got irony in spades. I mean, he is uh, a very intelligent and um, multi-layered and humorous guy. And um, so uh, and they did not use his score. They got Jerry Goldsmith to do it. And um, and. I've never heard his score, but there was something that suggested he was a little too ironic in his approach, and they didn't want uh, someone, someone, one of the powers that be was not looking for irony. That, that would be fun, though, to have. They have director's cuts, have a composer's cut, right? You know that. Yeah. Go in and and or, or even. Why isn't have, that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you have you have you have uh, mashups. It, the, sort of the fad for mashups has 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 gone away, where you take. The most famous one being the Grey album. You take Jay-Z and the Beatles and, and you mash music up. But I think it would right. be interesting, almost an interesting exercise to try and rescore a movie, even just a, like a really cheesy um, sequel, to sort of bring out new textures and, and un... Well, you know, actually, the, I, as I understand it, both uh, Titanic and Alien, um, the scores were not used in the way the composers intended. So you could even, in in terms of having your you know composer's cut, you could you could play it the way the uh, you know the, the composer intended and see were they right or were they wrong? Because clearly, the, both of the, both of those films hugely iconic, hugely successful, um, and uh, the directors probably you know made the right decisions. But um, and that's you know one of the things as a composer you live with you you provide this material and you think it's you know custom built for the project and they use it you know they put all the furniture in the wrong rooms and uh, you can't help but uh, think that they completely fucked it up but maybe they didn't maybe they just were far smarter and knew exactly what to use the furniture for well I want to get back to that collaborative element because really you are almost forced to be collaborative. You know, you can't take the movie over. You have to work in tandem with the director. And I think sometimes, and I'm curious to know when you have the right of veto against a director, but I, I wanted to point out that I saw a Steven Soderbergh, uh, he took Raiders of the Lost Ark and he threw in snippets of the Social Network soundtrack and he made it black and white with no dialogue. And it was really interesting how noirish Raiders of the Lost Ark became because that dun 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 dun, dun um, you know, that's, that's inseparable from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. But when it's in black and white, just a very harsh black and white, and it's a silent movie, and you have the social network soundtrack going, which is, which is Atticus Finch and, and uh, Trent Reznor, right? Yep. Which isn't even period 1930s or whenever that was supposed to be. To me, that was, that was a bewitching juxtaposition. That and, and Steven Soderbergh put it up on his own website, but 
that really, I think, helped me understand the task that you do in that you, you change the music to a movie and, and suddenly you, and of course he changed it to black and white as well, took away the dialogue, but really a different feel to that movie. So uh, adding on to something or following up on something you just said earlier, so you and the director disagree about a, a certain bit of music. How do, you, how do you negotiate that and how do you know when you're wrong or how do you convince him that you're right, him or her that you're right when it comes to a director's vision coming up against your vision for how music should enhance a certain section of a movie? Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, well, firstly, you know, there's no, there's no formula uh, winning that, you know, mm. argument mm. Um, in, in that, uh, and, and I have no intent, you know, I mean, I'm experienced enough to know there's no point in um, uh, fighting a losing battle. There, there is a point in um, experimenting and trying out different ideas and seeing if the, the director's sense of context can change. So, um, you know, my favorite director would be one that is very open to seeing what my music is contributing um, and then assessing the pros and cons rather than having a strict idea as to what it is that it needed to be. I don't, you know, like it didn't need to be, does it need to be specifically something or like, so I, for example, I have one uh, director I work with who uh, he's specific about the energy and the emotion, um, but uh, he doesn't care how I achieve that. So I can use also I could use I could do it in the way of the social network. I could do it with a full orchestra. He really doesn't care how I get there, but he knows narratively where he wants to be. And um, but there are other people who um, are very uh, may get very. Um, uh, very specific ideas and don't forget they've been worth the script for for ages and then they've been making the film so they've they've been very clear in their head about their vision of what it's going to end up being and sometimes you know the fact is that a script does not turn into exactly their vision along the way and so sometimes it needs help to become their vision or sometimes their vision just needs to morph into something uh, that accommodates the, the nature of the performances, the nature of the photography. And in that morphing, uh, there needs to be an organic process and the music may not be exactly what was originally imagined, but it may be better because it's, it actually is working with what's actually here, here and now. And um, so sometimes it's, uh, the, the discussion is more about um, discovering what the film can be rather than trying to live up to what it was intended to be. Are you competing against sort of this vague hypothetical soundtrack in the director's head? Well, sometimes that and sometimes they've been using temp score, which is just any CDs they chose to throw in and then they got comfortable with, but they were only ever placeholders. So sometimes you're fighting, uh, you're trying to better something that uh, has got lodged in their head but it doesn't mean that you're not going to better it. You just have to make sure that they understand um, what it is that they're being offered and why, you know, where, where it's, it's a process. And, and sometimes, you know, directors will listen, you know, they will listen to things in various different ways. And some, some directors want to just hear the music and then watch the film. Um, sometimes you just keep on playing it over and over and then we make some choices, make, play something else, and sometimes come back to the first thing and just go, that was always right. 
But I have to say, you know, I, I have no problem at all throwing throwing music out. If uh, if it's not delivering what the director needs, uh, then it's gone. And um, so there's an awful lot of uh, you know clippings on the floor. I'm really interested in that because I think that's almost an exemplary thing that you have to contend with as part of your professional life that people in other creative fields might appreciate because the idea of throwing out all this hard work you've done, you know, even for me as a writer or there's many other disciplines, even non-creative disciplines, where the idea of throwing out all this hard work seems devastating. But this is something you come up against all the time, that you could, you could come up with something really brilliant and then for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe because it, the music that's perfect for this scene is going to weight it against certain emotional um, currencies in another scene. So you're really forced as a, as a guy with, with decades of experience as a film composer to write something you really love and that other people might love and throw it away. So oh, I, yeah. I think that's something, I think your experience could be useful here. How do you let go? How, do, how does this work? Well, it's easier, you know, I mean, firstly, I write lots of rubbish. Uh, you know, you, you, you exercise taste over what you've, you know, you, you keep on generating music um, uh, or whatever, you know, whatever your, your creative stuff is. You just, you know, I, I, someone asked me three days ago about writers, how to deal with writer's block. I, I don't believe in writer's block I, because, um, because writer's block suggests to me that you're judging what you're doing. You shouldn't be judging it. You should just be pouring ideas out. And some of them are going to be, most of them are going to be terrible. But it doesn't stop you pouring them out. And, and, you know, I have to be very disciplined about allowing every bad idea its day. And just going, well, that's a terrible, you know, I think I'll do it all with this little bamboo twangy thing. And you go, that's a terrible idea. Well, then try it. You try it and see if it's got, you know, is it, is it that mad? And so just doing tons of experiments, allowing every idea, bad or good, to have its day before throwing them away. So I throw away the vast majority of the things I come up with. And then, then you put it in front of, uh, you know, in the, my case, the director. And the ideal is that if, if it's going to be thrown away, it's thrown away now. The worst is the director likes it and, and, and you develop it. And three weeks later, you've actually written five things based on that theme. And that's the day the director goes, you know, I, 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 the, the other thing that you wrote for, this for that other sequence was so nice. And it's made me realize that uh, this theme isn't that good. And you just go, oh, no. So, or, so how do you come to terms with that? I mean, it's, it, the bamboo twangy thing might be, you know, you, you throw it out there and it doesn't stick. But something that did stick and then now you're, I mean. Well, the fact is, you know, and I tell you how I deal with it. It's, it's um, the, you know, it's, and I'm not saying it's easy, but I am actually very quick about doing it. Like, I, you know, I've, my body will tense up and I, as I just go, oh, my God, all that work's going. And then you just go, OK, well, let's clarify what you are seeing this as. And then, you know, because when you get a, a new set of terms, a new set of directions or uh, a, a more informed perspective on the point of view, then um, then I immediately start imagining a different way of seeing it. And... Um, and it's very much about the vision. It's not about the music at all. It's very much the vision. You know, if, if, if you've, I've been writing this music to support what, you know, character A's point of view, the spy's point of view. But in fact, the, you know, we reached this point 
a month later that the director goes, it should really be the victim's point of view. And then you just, the moment you get that, you just go, oh, yeah, no, that's, now I, I see that the, the other approach doesn't fit with that at all. And it's easy to sort of start being creative in uh, coming up with how to support this new perspective. I'm curious to know how often accident comes into play, how uh, good ideas are not the result of intention. Because I, you know, I'm... Oh, I'm, they're never the result of intention. Okay, well, I, I, I'd like to know more about that. And, and I know that, you know, I'm a fan of your Zen Effect music, um, which, as I understand, you sort of stumbled upon. It never occurred to you that you could, you know, record 30-minute tracks, you know, that don't deviate much musically. Right. And, and maybe we can talk about that more later. But it sounds like maybe accident is the rule rather than the exception. I know you're a traveler. That's, I mean, we've hung out in in Brazil and France and, and different parts of the United States. Um, we're sitting in a room full of international uh, instruments. How does accident come into play and how does it affect your sense of creative originality? Well, um, accident comes into play all the time. So, you know, I, I, I used to have this model of how I start a project, which is you spend three days writing absolute shit and then, um, and then and the reason being because your, uh, let's see, is it the left brain? The left brain is supposed to be the logical brain, isn't it? The left brain thinks uh, we're under, you know, it thinks in terms of logic. We've got a time constraint. We need to get this thing done. I've got this. And so for three days, you, uh, logic defines what you do. Not creativity, not whimsy, not inspiration, but logic. And you just go, it would, should go from this chord to this chord. That would be a natural fit. And what you do is produce music, which is all about the rules and doesn't have anything interesting about it at all. And then after three days, uh, in frustration and exhaustion, you start just doing wrong things or things which make no sense. And in the process, you, you, the taste wakes up and just goes, oh, that wasn't bad. You should, what was that you just did? And you start noticing and you discover things and suddenly, suddenly you're off and away. And so uh, it's always getting past the logic and into the mistakes that makes the most sense. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that, I think that's the, the essential. I mean, the, there's no other particularly accidental thing. There was a lovely story of Ry Kuda doing the score to Paris, Texas, where he didn't like what he'd, he only had like three or four days to do the, all the music and he accidentally knocked over his guitar. And when he picked it up, the theme which had sounded bad to him suddenly sounded good because the guitar was now slightly out of tune. And so he never tuned the guitar again. <laughs> he just kept it out of tune for the rest of the thing. That's a great sort of mistake. I mean, I suppose in the same, you know, family of, uh, of mistakes, you know, I have all these instruments, many of which I can barely play or just, or just make ridiculous noises with. Um, but they give you a different approach to... Um, playing. I mean, you know, the notes that one thinks of singing are not the notes one's... Well, on a piano, you don't want repeated notes very often because they're all the same note. But when singing, you don't mind repeated notes because they're all different. They're voiced differently. So you go ding, 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 ding. It's not very interesting, but mi la sonati sounds somehow more plausible. So different instruments give you different opportunity. Um, you pick up a, a melodica. I love the melodica. It's, it's a sort of um, you know, what is it? It's a, it's a mouth organ with a keyboard instead of different holes. Um, 
and but it's a superbly lyrical thing it, it naturally produces melody and um, so uh, if I'm frustrated playing on the piano or bashing a guitar I will try the melodica that'll produce something differently um, or, or I'll sing singing um, is, is uh, sort of for me anyway sort of a, a much neglected resource for turning out melody um, and so all of these things you could regard as being you know deliberately creating mistakes I mean they're certainly creating uh, they're, they're tricking your muscle memory into being a different kind of thing because if uh, by muscle memory you know it, the, if you, you habitually write the same kind of chords or you habitually you know open with the same kind of paragraph and this way you you trip yourself up and make sure that you're doing something you wouldn't have naturally thought of. I'm curious to know how much of this happy accident comes out of the process of fiddling, for lack of a better word, with instruments, and how much comes just from being in the world. I mean, are you ever inspired by, you know, hearing a sack of wet garbage falling off a truck or Arabic pop music heard from a subway? I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean the subways are great because you know there are all those sounds of brakes and and uh, each each country's I don't know why every country's subway is completely different. They all seem to uh, you'd have thought that at, at some point they would go. This is the best carriage for a subway. We should always use we, everyone should use the same one, but they don't. They all custom make them. Why well, the New York subway doesn't resemble? doesn't resemble the Los Angeles one and um, with neither of those look anything like the Metro or uh, um, the London Underground. The London Underground has like so many different versions as well. It's just bizarre. They just, you would have thought they would come up with one good one. But anyway, that notwithstanding, um, uh, yeah, there are all those, uh, absolutely all those sounds. If someone drops, you know, those... Um, on building sites, I mean, they've got a tall building and they have those sort of orange shoots where they dr drop things in to go into the trash. And if you hear a rhythm as it bashes down, it might be a fantastic rhythm. Um, Can you think of a specific inspiration that made it into a movie, for example, the, of, of a, just some sort of random... Uh, well, I've certainly used um, Mexican forest crickets in uh, movie scores. And... Um, I might have used bus brakes, you know, that the, um, very possibly used bus brakes in something. Um, uh, if, if you'd give me a advance notice, I might have remembered more, but uh, there, there are definitely things like that uh, that I've been using. Just to, to, to deviate a little bit, since that's the, the theme of our podcast, um, when I came in here today, you had this giant iPad type thing that you're using to sort of stimulate yourself into self-organization, that you're basically approximating handwritten notes to yourself that you organize your day with. Uh, and I think you were talking about, you, you were also talking about your use of kitchen timers and meeting out focus. And so Oh yeah. How do you, it, it sounds like, and you can disagree with me, it sounds like you're finding ways to tricking yourself into organization and tricking yourself into focus. And so how are you using these tools to make yourself more creative or productive? Well, it, um, the, the timers, it's, um, I think the term is Pomodoro, which is um, sort of using 25 minute or 30 minute chunks in order to be um, optimally functional. So, um, I, 
this works in two ways for me. I'm, on the one hand, I can get, um, I can, I can easily distract myself from actually doing work, especially at the beginning of a project, where the, you know, the the blank page um, makes me want to go and uh, check email and make tea. And those, so those are your your ways of distracting yourself: email and tea. I, I I seem to spend an inordinate amount of time pottering around the kitchen, just going, um, pretending that this is you know productive time in the day. Um, so uh, I I use the timers. Originally, I was using a kitchen timer to make sure that I was putting in um, a minimum of four hours of productive time a day. And this was inspired by Stephen Pressfield's book. Um, uh, the the war of art where he said he put in four hours a day and I thought that's incredibly lazy for only four hours and then I timed how much time I actually sat doing real work and found it to be about two hours in an eight-hour day so do you use the kitchen timer to time your to like ding you out of distraction originally it was only to monitor how many minutes I was actually working and so that I could make sure I did at least four hours in a day and um, but then more recently, I uh, realized that it's very practical to simply set, especially if I'm if I'm reluctant and very prone in a, in a mode of being prone to distraction. Um, it was very helpful to discipline myself by going, you're going to do 30 minutes, then you get a five minute break, then you're going to do 30 minutes and then you get a 15 minute break and then you're going to do 30 minutes and setting the timer to make sure that I sat down and focused. And then you know, whenever I was, whenever I thought, oh, I'll just go make some. Oh no, I've still got twelve minutes to go. Uh, so you can't take, you can't go away from. You cannot leave work focus until the the kitchen timer dings. Correct. Okay. Um, I've, I've heard something similar about a writer who would tie himself to his chair, but with just like a piece of ten foot yarn, and so he put one uh, knot around his belt loop and the other around his chair. And if he got up to do whatever bullshit thing you do when you should be working, then suddenly his, this little piece of yarn would yank against the chair. And it wasn't like it would strap him to his chair, but it would guilt him back into his chair. Right. So yeah, yeah. It, it sounds a little bit similar. Uh, yeah, maybe so. The, um, and also, you know, you can do it for the breaks. You know, lunch, it's, it's, you may allow yourself an hour for lunch, but then suddenly two hours have passed. So, again, using timers, hugely useful to me to keep myself on task and keep, my, keep myself productive. Um, it, it only matters when there's a deadline, but um, but when there's a deadline, you know, I need to I need to be you know feel like I'm making serious progress, feel like I'm sort of checking boxes and getting on with stuff. So the the timers, and I've been using it for you know using timers for ten fifteen years, and a huge benefit. Just like a a tick 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 ding, target. What is the digital? Timer. I use a digital one. It's okay. silent, um, okay. I, and I experimented. You know, use. You know, I can't use, you know, I've got a stopwatch over there. Can't use it. It doesn't ding. It doesn't go beep, 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 beep. You know, that, it needs to make a noise. Um, I am absolutely the person who forgets that, you know, you left the toast on. So, uh, so I do need something to remind me of stuff. And, um, uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's also, I mean, you know, I've worked at it and, and figured, you know, you go, maybe it should be an hour. But within an hour, you know, you get lost and you get distracted. It may be if I set the 30 minute timer that I will, when it beeps, I will keep on working for the full hour. That's perfectly, it happens all the time. That's fine, what, um, but there's no point in setting a timer for longer than um, I can rely upon my focus. You wonder, you know, I, if, if 25 minutes is it, then that's fine. And then I'll take a break 
and which will enable me to bring my focus back when I come back. Now, how do you bring yourself back into focus? Because this is a problem that I have myself, is that sometimes I will go prepare lunch, eat lunch, and then I'll have a hard time getting back into the groove, or I'll mm -hmm. go for a run, or sometimes my mornings are much more productive than my afternoons. I'll come back from that run, by the time I'm showered, then my brain has scattered. So you have these chunks, how do you connect them? How do you make your afternoon 25 minute chunks as um, productive and self-starting as your morning ones? I don't think, you, to be honest, I, um, I like the hours before the sun comes up and I've, uh, and I've neglected them. You know, I, I'm trying to figure out how to um, meet out the hours of the day. Um, ideally, I would sleep four hours at night and four hours um, in the afternoon. And I would, um, you know, I'd get up at four and, uh, and, and get, you know, four hours in before, you know, the sun was, you know, much above the horizon. And um, I think that might be my optimal, but um, I think the uh, the uh, the early afternoon is is really hard. And I I try to eat a ketogenic diet. You know, it's not like I'm full. You know, saturated with glucose or anything. But still, the uh, the afternoon seems like a, a dull patch where the uh, the best inspiration uh, for me, the best the, the fieriest ideas come. Uh, in the early morning, and uh, and then quite often right around five and six o'clock at night. Are you caffeinated in the early morning? I, I mostly don't drink caffeine. Um, I, I sometimes have tea, but not generally first thing in the morning. So no, I um, uh, when it comes to real caffeine, like sort of coffee, that's mid morning and uh, early afternoon only. Um, this, this, so, is a, this is something that interests me because I, one, I can appreciate your before sunrise type writing but sometimes I'm just like too emotionally bereft before the sun comes up like I can't handle it and sometimes my way to stave off my um, early morning despair is to drink some coffee uh, and actually coffee can really snap me back into uh, focus and I'm, I'm not suggesting that everybody is creative in the same way but I'm also curious about alternatives to my own creative process and so I, this is interesting the idea how do you wake yourself up at uh, before sunrise and how do you Oh, two mile walk. Go for a two mile walk in hills. That's two nice. miles. Yeah, in the That's, dark. Well, you know, if it's yeah, if it's it's nice and cool. And you know, I mean, I live in Los Angeles most of the time, and it's hot, and um, it doesn't really it doesn't really suit me. So, so pre dawn for walking and exercise, absolutely best time. And uh, walking is the uh, the best time for any kind of narrative creativity for me so um, whenever I'm writing stories or speeches I do that um, while walking and so that generally happens first thing in the morning and um, uh, walking is also um, just great for um, you know when you wake up it's like the desktop has all these files on top of each other and um, after a walk they've all kind of separated and you know which ones are important and which ones aren't that's how it feels to me. Um, so the, the walk is, is vital. I've done lots of composing while walking, but uh, the thing that I, I, but I can compose at a keyboard or with another instrument, whereas uh, story writing, anything to do with words, um, the, most of the conceptualizing happens while walking. I can do the, I can write, you know, noodle with grammar and, and word choice and rhythm 
you know, with with the computer, but uh, but walking is where the actual the great the great sweep of the of the enterprise happens. I think I underutilize that myself. That sometimes I I almost go on that ten feet of yarn principle. I think that tying myself to my desk is going to force me into the epiphany or the turning point. When in fact, sometimes off I probably run more than I walk, but I'm out running or walking. And then suddenly my mind is working in a different way. It's, it's strange how when, I don't know, somehow the physicality of that activity changes. Yeah, and for some reason it gives support to ideas which um, when static don't seem supported. So the, the number of times, oddly the Zen effect seems to do something similar. Um, any creative ideas you have which um, feel already surrounded, it's like, you know, singing in the shower versus singing in a dry, you know, in, a, in a, um, a reverbless room in front of other people. You know, in the shower, it's supported by reverb. You've got the echoes of the bathroom and it feels supported and, uh, and it makes sense. You just go, this is nice. And then you try and do the exact same thing uh, downstairs and you just go, oh, it's not very good. Um, but it was good. It was good when supported. And I think the same applies to all sorts of ideas. I have, you know, lots of narrative ideas. I'm developing these various theatrical and um, interactive projects. And I will have ideas while walking. Um, and uh, then when on the, you know, it feels like by the cold light of day, I re-articulate the same idea. And it seems terrible. It seems like, well, that's bare bones. It doesn't have anything to, to it. But I actually think it, they do. Um, I think we lose confidence and we become these cold judges of our ideas uh, too easily. Walking, um, for some reason, or running, or whatever, you know, wax on, wax off, you know, the repetitive idea um, enables creativity to feel supported and therefore you, um, you can actually have good ideas and you don't sabotage them quite so quickly. I love that metaphor. Until I'm, I just turned 47, it never occurred to me that the reverb aspect, why people sing in the shower, that somehow it softens uh, the performance. I mean, you have the solitude, obviously, in the shower, but then you also have a very specific sonic environment. And I think that walking or motion gives you... I, also, I think walking is ever more important in this day and age when you have... If you're harnessed to your desk with your Wi-Fi signal, then your rituals of distraction are much more focused. You know, there's uh, walking forces, especially walking without like a smartphone that's plugged into a music or a podcast or something. Uh, it allows your mind to wander in a way that your, your mind is not allowed to wander right. otherwise. And then even, even if all of your other stimulus are turned off and you're focused on that page, then sometimes focusing on the page isn't the best creative um, option. You know, sometimes letting your mind wander is good. And, and it's, it's amazing how often, in retrospect, some of my creative breakthroughs, in screenwriting in particular, and I'm not as advanced in screenwriting as I am in other types of writing, that I'll just solve problems. There's a lot of problem solving. And I'm a writer, you're a musician, but I think there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of problem solving when you, you're walking and then your brain is just sort of still turning ideas over. And then suddenly, instead of being frustrated by the blank page or the half full page, then suddenly you're, you're breathing air and seeing birds and, and whatever else is in your walk. And um, somehow it's a different kind of thinking, you know, that, yeah. that somehow your brain is working in a completely different way, just like your ears are working in a different way when you're singing in the shower versus singing in the hall. So I'm actually right now um, 
I'm experimenting with uh, the morning pages again. So the you know the artist's way practice, which which has been around for like twenty five years, right? Long time, and and I've done it. I, I, I've I've run the whole course twice, and uh, and the last time was a while back, ten years or more ago. Um, but just recently, I have so many different um, projects, and they're all in the air at the same time, and. Um, and I was just trying to, uh, which require a lot of writing. One of them is composing, but everything, everything, everything requires composing. But some of them require conceiving and writing because they're sort of theatrical. And, and know, when you ideas. say writing versus composing, how? Um, what's well, the difference? One's music and one's words and okay. uh, and narratives and dynamics. Gotcha. And um, and I thought, well, maybe if I do the morning pages, this will help uh, sort of clarify where I am with all of this. And um, and that certainly, because it's stream of consciousness, because you don't have to write, there's, there's no program to it other than keep writing. Um, uh, there, are, there are so often these fantastic discoveries where you just sort of, you suddenly start dancing on the page rather than um, just plowing through words. And um, I found that really, I, I find it really useful, and um, you know, and you know, without without looking for to it to be a reliable source of material, but somehow or other, you will take an idea and noodle with it, and noodle with it, and noodle with it, and then suddenly you realise, oh, that wasn't a silly idea at all. That was actually an an awesome idea. Um, so I, I I'm discovering that, but that's a very different approach to the blank page than I think a writer would normally take because you're not stream of consciousness, conscious writing generally. You're writing with a sense of purpose. It's the stream of consciousness writing that, akin to walking or whatever, that um, enables you to throw up a wrong idea, an interesting mistake. Is there an overlap between the writing, the morning pages, and your musical creativity? I, well, I think years ago there was, because there was this discovery that the slightest idea, because sometimes, you know, I'd sit down at the morning pages just going, I have nothing to say today. And so you'd write about the slightest thing, you know, the, a thing which couldn't possibly matter. Um, you might touch on noticing a single leaf moving in a breeze or not moving in a breeze out your window. And then in you'd keep on writing. So you'd write more about that and it, maybe it brings up a memory or maybe you start describing the leaf or maybe you start thinking about wind or whatever. And, and, and after a page, you realise the idea that didn't seem like an idea was a real idea. There was something which, which, which accumulated momentum and, and mass and now you actually are enjoying writing about this thing. It has so much more dimension than it looked like it had. And taking from that into every other area of creativity and just going, perhaps there is nothing so slight that it isn't an interesting idea. And so that it's only in music you can take that and just go, you know, just one note on a piano. Is that all it is, one note? And you just go, well, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a way of seeing it or a way of exploring it or a way of changing it or repeating it or whatever. And, and, and really just the discipline of taking very slight ideas or all ideas seriously just to see if there's any, anything really there. You mentioned the morning pages, which obviously is something that you've 
used before and come back to. Mm -hmm. And for as long as I've known you, you've always used or dabbled with, for lack of a better word, different um, creative advice and inspiration. And it, it feels like you're always looking for new ways to manage your um, creative life. Which ones have been useful? I mean, which, uh, I mean, there's dozens and hundreds of metaphors for helping us focus and stuff. Obviously, the morning pages have been useful. What else has, have you found useful in sort of, after all these years, tricking yourself into or inspiring yourself into new creative work? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, you're probably right. Probably there are some sort of solid things, but I can't, you know, I'm, I'm really terrible at, at remembering sort of lists of, of things. Um, uh, well, th we'll think about it, and I'm going to add on to this a little bit, that I'm, 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 something that I'm very curious about is sort of the mid-career challenge of being creative, uh, because you're a successful person. You know, you're a top-shelf uh, Hollywood film composer, but certainly there's anxieties and frustrations and, and difficulties involved in this. Um, and there's what I've called before success management. It's like, how do you continue to be hungry and innovative and, and, and deal with the challenges and the apprehensions of continuing to be successful? And so even if there's not you know, a, a book in a bookstore that you can go find and has helped you, obviously there's different ap approaches to keeping yourself sharp even after many years of success. So holistically, in the in big picture sense, how do you keep yourself balanced? And, and um, you're not 22, 27, 35 anymore. You have a lot of, how many films have you scored now? I don't know. It's, I think it's over 50. It, yeah. may be, it may be a lot over 50, I'm not sure. But the, um, well, firstly, I always work with directors and, and uh, I, I, um, I always have a rapport with, a director, I always, you know, they they always strike me. The ones I end up that end up hiring me always are people um, that I have a rapport with, that we like each other, and they have they bring um, a whole. They are a discipline because you know you, I have to navigate my way towards them in you know in terms of taste, and um, they give you structure. They give me structure. They give they they also yeah a lot of structure and they may not the you know and and because there are certain people I've worked with many times like Alexander Payne and like um, uh, Richard Shepard and Jason Reitman and they uh, will really push me. They 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 want to work with me, but not in order to produce something that I've already done. Um, and that's great because most people you know Hollywood loves to typecast people so people normally get hired to do the thing that they've been that they've done 15 times before and I, that could nothing could bore me more but the um but the director that says you know do something completely different than anything you've done before for me uh that, that's automatically a challenge and, in, and and an interesting one to me so i get i get stimulated by that um i also like uh, the oblique strategies of uh, Brian Eno. Do you know about these? Um, they, 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 uh, originally, it was um, a list of challenges that he put up on a studio wall to push musicians into doing something other than what they were expecting to do. And 
um, because it was a list on the studio wall, the musicians would always look at it and choose the easiest one. So he then took the, that down and made it a set of cards. And now you can just get it as an app. It's cards on your app. And there will be things like, try it upside down. Um, think about the negative space. Or, you know, what would this be like if it stopped and began again? Or, you know, things like that. And what's the name of the app? Uh, well, it's, all, uh, it's always called Oblique Strategies. Hmm. And uh, I believe Brian Eno was the originator of it. And I, I've, I have it on my phone. I can't say I use it very much, but it, the attitude of it, I use a lot. The, um, the idea, let's write a piece of music in with one chord and you, you do not change the chord. Um, that, you know, that, that interesting use of parameters. Uh, there was a movie called uh, Mexico City, which Richard Shepard directed, and decided I wasn't going to use any sound except for the Spanish guitar. There was nothing. Now, I could do whatever I liked with it. I could customize it. I could process it. But I was not going to use anything other than the Spanish guitar in the complete writing of that score, simply as a discipline to see what would happen and uh, to push me into areas of uh, exploration, which I wasn't used to. And uh, that was great. I mean, like at one point I wanted the sound of a submarine and I went, how do I make the sound of a submarine with a Spanish guitar? You know, it involved learning things which I did not know. And um, so, oops, sorry, cable. Uh, so lots of uh, sort of stuff like that. I'm also just endlessly fascinated by, by things, but it, it does, I, I'm, a, I'm very aware that I'm uh, driven by my own curiosity and fascination and that if it's, I can't, you can't, I can't fake that curiosity. I mean, that's why I like to do something different each time because if it's the same each time, then my curiosity sort of expires. Um, there was a film score which turned out really well, which was for uh, Rain Over Me, um, a Mike Binder film. And um, it was, initially I thought, oh my God, it's gonna be another comedy score and I've just done a comedy score, this is gonna be tedious, um, even though I love the film. And, uh, but then I sort of invented a new, I, I sort of challenged myself to use a completely different uh, musical approach to writing for comedy. Uh, which was much more rhythm and reggae based and much less orchestra and pizzicato based. And it totally worked. At least <laughs> I, say, I say that myself. But it, um, it made everybody happy. I mean, the, the score worked very well with the film. And, uh, uh, and that challenge had made me happy. In fact, I did, I think, the Dexter theme uh, right afterwards. And the Dexter theme was very much uh, in terms of, of, of rhythm and energy it was very much inspired by the work I'd already just done on Rain Over Me. Interesting. You know, I've, I've, um, I've sat in on your song workshops before, which I loved. I, I've only done it once. I, I get, and, and what I'm getting to is, is the way in which your creative curiosity manifests itself in ways outside of film. And I, you've talked recently about um, immersive musical theater, which I'm curious to know more about. But then also these song workshops where I sat right here in your house during Christmas, actually, and I recorded some of the songs that people invented right on the spot. It was Rolling Stones theme night. And um, again, this is, this is outside of your normal professional purview, but just it was delightful to hear what people came up with. And, and I actually go back, I recorded this with my phone. I actually go back and listen to these Christmas songs that were invented on the spot 
because they're good, you know. And so I'm curious to know if things like that, if, if um, your song workshops, which are sort of a, you being a, a pedagogue, you know, you're teaching other people or working with other musicians, or this amus immersive musical theater, does that all feed back into your professional life or is that just a way of, of expressing different kinds of creativity? Well, I think, I, you know, firstly, I think my professional life is, is just creativity. So even though the, uh, the immersive stuff probably won't pay in the short term, uh, who's, who's to say that it won't become my career? I mean, you know, or, or a, another, you know, string to my bow. The, um, but uh, I think creativity is what most excites me. Um, you know, a conversation where you're um, playing with ideas is the best kind of conversation as far as I'm concerned. And so um, it's always about ideas and it's always about being um, stimulated. So whether that's by your own ideas or by being in an environment where lots of people are contributing ideas, doesn't really matter so um, it all I, I don't think of my film career as being particularly separate to that it's all uh, you know certainly because I'm biased towards the musical end of creativity um, but not exclusively um, it's just too satisfying to me and um, and too dissatisfying to not be doing musical things in creativity um, but that doesn't mean I, I don't want to be you know writing stories or or, or uh, narratives or something else um, uh, you know and, and creativity in science is exactly the same as far as I'm concerned exactly the same t thing you know your best scientists your most and your best artisans and craftsmen are all people who uh, are creative and who are juxtaposing things which no one juxtaposed before so that's what excites me most of all so I think it all feeds into itself um, the song shops and the story shops. Well, there were song shops. There, there probably were some that were created on the night, but mostly they're created over the preceding week, and then everyone piles in and and and, and learns them and and performs them together on the night. Um, and they're and they're always creative, partly because the challenge is always absurd. I mean, these are. But it's also a, a structure. You know, it's it's like that. What you were you were talking about. A few beats ago in the conversation is if, if you have certain constrictions on what you can or can't do, then it creates a, a, a very specific kind of creativity. So right. If so you're... the song shop is is uh, the parameters are always you know, basically a week earlier, a an assignment is set, and the assignment is generally for songs, it is a musical style. So something like Zydeco or the missing song from a Chuck Berry album or something like that, and five words that must be in that song. And those five words are deliberately chosen to be words that could not possibly be in that song. So that, uh, so that, that sets up a challenge and a struggle in, in order to somehow weave the whole thing into a, a cogent thing rather than just a terrible mess. And, they, and you know, the results vary, but it's always amazing how uh, great so many of the songs are so and you know i send it out and and the, a week later you know 20 people turn up and seven seven of them have written songs 
and uh, everyone sings every song. We, the, you know, they, we pass them around and people pick up instruments and everyone howls their way through every song. And um, it's something absolutely charming about it and more charming than playing, you know, uh, Beatles songs from a songbook. It's, it's because something about the, 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 uh, everyone having done the same uh, exercise and we're all fascinated to see, so how did you get spaghetti, motor oil, um, and uh, alopecia into the song? And when you, when you, you know, and it's, it's sometimes hilarious how people have managed to sort of get the, you know, the, the, the more ridiculous words into the narrative. Well, the, the, like, in this weird way, some of my favorite Christmas songs are from that song shop. <laughs> I think it's been three years ago now. Um, and I think, I don't know, there's something whimsical and delightful about that. Now, real quick, you, you told me that you're involved in uh, immersive musical theater, which is an abstraction. That sounds weird. Like, that sounds like some sort of experimental high school class. What, what is that? What does that mean? It sounds so wrong. I mean, we've got to find a better term for it. It's sort of a, it's sort of a technical, technocratic way of something that's probably more delightful. So yeah, it? well, it's, you know, and again, you know, it's funny when you use the word, you just used the word whimsy, didn't you? Or whimsical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I realized that whimsy is so important to me that um, I, I cannot go to Mars because I've, I've you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by space and I've, I've seen, you know, I've been on a mock-up of the International Space Station and it's completely charmless. And, um, and I can't go to Mars until there's charm and whimsy there. And there's not going to be any charm or whimsy for quite a long time. So I think I can't go. Um, not that anyone's asked me to, but, you know, I, I always think that uh, I have great respect for Italian builders who don't regard a building as finished until they've done the filigree and the little curly cue bits. And because um, I think that's that's where they, you know, yeah, it's not complete without that. And um, so... Uh, yes, the, uh, the the immediate the immediacy of um, an an immersive interactive musical experience um, that's what excites me. It's, it's this this idea of being uh, very alive to the moment in a way that you can turn up to a, a, a theatre performance in a bad mood and tired and fall asleep. You cannot do that at some immersive experiences and so uh, in a concrete sense what does this look like um how does this work well the, well the how it works what it looks like who knows because you know the in in my little uh, enterprise which is called the unmarked door um i love this idea that you go into an alleyway and there are all these doorways and you just go which one is it and it's the one which isn't marked in any way so um so the unmarked door um the the central conceit of it is to is only described by doing by saying what I pretty much said, that you should be captivated and alive to it, um, and that the world is so intriguing that you forget the, the the normal world outside, and that can turn up in various different ways. And uh, some of them maybe you may be a bit more passive, but it, it may be binaural. Hence my binaural microphone here. Maybe that you're wearing headphones and you feel like it's happening to you. Or it may be that it's um, much more interactive and you're in a, in a building or a space where um, you actually do have to answer questions and interact with people and there is a mission and there is a secret and you have to get that secret from, 
from this person to get it over to so that So it's like person. a game or an escape room or something, is that? Uh, you know, that, maybe, but, um, but in the musical uh, element, you know, I, 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 I find that, um, you know, when I was in a choir as a kid or in an orchestra, you know, the, the fact of uh, being in a place where the music is created all around you and by you and, and, and you know, that whole uh, fascinating fabric of energy that occurs when you're in the middle of a piece of music rather than simply listening to something that you know already and you've, it's a recording so you know it's going to, exactly how it's going to go. This one has a mystery element to it because you don't know if it's going to survive. You don't know if these players are capable of getting through it. You know, it may be a very fragile piece um, or it may just have unexpected twists and turns. So you, you are alive to it in a different way. And if you're actually part of the making of it as well, then that becomes even more intriguing. So uh, that seemed to be, I, you know, I love Punch Drunk in London and, you know, and Sleep No More in New York and Secret Cinema in London and other places. Um, I, I love what they do. And I just thought, um, how much more fascinating would it be to me if there was a live musical uh, fabric to it as well? And that could be an individual, you know, weeping mandolin player in a hallway, or it could be the whole ensemble playing, you know, um, uh, gutter jazz, um, with a, a gutter jazz tango. And um, so that's that's the idea. So what does it look like? I don't, you know, you, you'll have to you'll have to watch this space and turn up and find out. I think it manifests in very different ways in different places. We, we at the moment. We have uh, four different shows we're doing, and um, two of them are much more sung. You know, there will, there will be songs, and and um, but there will always be a high degree of participation. Whether you get to participate in the music or not, or how you participate, um, will vary. Um, and then there's another couple which of, of shows which uh, are very different in nature and much more um, uh, secretive and and tension driven. But they're still um, they're still musical and they're still interactive. I like the idea of this. You know, I, I remember from a very young age. One of my metaphors for someone who was very confident was they can hear their own theme music, and I think sometimes uh, people will actually listen to music as they exercise to sort of somehow narrate or mythify this difficult and mundane activity. So I think there's an extent to which we all try to score our own lives to a certain extent. Well, uh, I've certainly found John Williams, I like John Williams for the uh, dentist's chair because John Williams is very narrative music. It always, it, it tends to be telling a story, going from going somewhere. And uh, I've tried other music in the dentist's chair, but if it's sort of just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, or somehow static, um, uh, my attention will drift back to whatever horrible happening is going on in my mouth. Um, whereas if I stick with um, uh, something like John Williams or some other film music, Thomas Newman's good for this as well, uh, I will get caught up in the energy and the flow of the music and taken away from uh, the, uh, the, the drill. It's interesting how verse chorus makes music bite-sized. Because uh, I, I, this is sort of an aside, but I know that Rick Rubin sort of transformed hip hop music. It used to be just be jams, you know, that, that you would jam for 15 minutes in the park. Uh, 
but that doesn't, isn't very radio friendly. You know, it fills in, it creates a mood and an atmosphere, but put that on a record and who's going to listen to a, an open-ended jam? And so I think we're sort of, we fall into the pattern of verse, chorus, verse, because that makes music consumable. Um, but sometimes you don't want that because that is very succinct. It, it has a beginning and an end, whereas um, if you are scoring your own life, be it in a dentist chair. So you're, literally you listen to John Williams in The Dentist. I, I put together a playlist. Okay. Yeah. And I've had John Williams. John Williams has been, uh, that was, it was with him that I, you know, I was listening to some Harry Potter music and, I, and it was with that that I went, oh, this is, this is good for the dentist. I'm liking this. I'm, I'm, you know, now it's better when it's unfamiliar. So it's no good for me anymore. I have to find something else. Um, but you want to be fascinated by where it's going to take you. Um, that was useful to me. Um, you know, the, the reason singles are three and a half minutes is because of the vinyl, not because anyone said that three and a half minutes is the right length for a song. It was just what the vinyl would take. And it's amazing how we get, uh, you know, I was thinking of this recently. There was this um, uh, show I was watching where they were talking about how we get entrapped by our technology. And you always think the technology is going to set us free. You know, you get get the get the latest tablet or the latest smartphone and look, it can do this, this and this. And, and But then you look around at society and you just go, everyone's stuck on these things. You know, we didn't have cell phones and um, and we didn't need them. But then they invented them and suddenly you can't really live without it and you can't live without answering it or checking it all the time. So we've actually become, you know, this an element of servitude to the technology. And... Um, uh, and I, and it, it does give me pause. Um, the the great thing about doing you know immersive experiential uh, events is that um, you wake up. You you know you cannot be doing this on your phone, and you cannot be alone doing it. You have to be uh, on your metal, as it were. You have to be making a connection. Um, and I like that. I like that it breaks you away from the technology. And I do think we need to sort of reframe. Uh, we, we have to we, we have to make deliberate choices about how we use technology you know when coming back to the singles and how um, the Grateful Dead decided they weren't going to stop doing jams they were going to let their tracks be as long as they wanted and that by definition meant poorer record sales they weren't going to have these great hits that other people were having but they'd made a choice they 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 wanted to go in that direction um, I think I think the problem, you know, there's that idea that you uh, you should define what your future, you know, you should write down what you'd like your future to look like, because otherwise you're going to be on autopilot, and the autopilot was programmed by your parents, and um, I think there's uh, I think there's truth to that. I think there's um, something similar to be said about our relationship to technology. I know, or it's it, programmed socially. It's programmed by, by your parents or by just sort of generic social expectations, or in this day and age, the the sort of hyper algorithm algorithmicized um, distraction culture that is right. uh, that is smartphone America. Uh, and it's funny, you know, <clears throat> my first vagabonding trip was in '94. It was just paper maps and coins in, a, in phone booths. I came over here from Playa Vista today, and my phone told me every turn to make. You right. know that I was I was totally wired in and in a way I'm a more sophisticated person than I was when I was half the age I am now yet I'm dependent upon this phone it, it wouldn't occur to me 
And so it's interesting. Uh, te technology does simplify things, but it also restricts us in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, just you know, if you just think of the panic of going that, that I can see it, and I, I dare say, you know, you may not have it, but lots of people would have it if you just go, yeah, you can't use your, you know, you uh, in this country, you're not going to be able to use your phone, and then immediately you're just going, oh wait a minute, what, how am I going to? What, how am I going to do anything? And how am I going to figure out the language? Uh, you know, we just go, okay, I'm going to have to go old school. I mean, I'm going to have to find a dictionary and I'm going to get maps. And I hope that works. And, it, and it's totally doable. It's funny. I've known you long enough that I've come here plenty of times without a phone telling me where to turn left and right. right. Uh, but yet somehow... Um, I bet, I, but I bet some people panic. And, and, and even just thinking about it makes me go a little cold. Just go, yeah. oh, no, no, <laughs> nothing. You just go, if, if you sent me to a place I've never been, I've never been to Moscow, you just go, yeah, go to Moscow. By the way, you can't use a phone there. And you just go, ah, oh, it would have been so much easier if I had a phone. Yeah, no, it, it's, um, yeah. I mean, if, if you study the history of, and again, this is a complete aside, but if you study the history of travel long enough, you'll realize just how um, resourceful and immersive people used to be, you know, whereas right. now you can, you can, you're like in this super mobile bubble where you can go, you can be having the same text conversations, the same um, habits and interactions at, at, at home. You just happen to be in a different environment. Um, but jumping back, an, uh, an earlier thought I had to how we, we sort of all score all our lives to a certain extent. And this is funny how it wasn't that long ago when you couldn't really score your life in a mobile sense. The, the car stereo and then even more specifically the Walkman allowed you to create your, to curate your own score as you walked through the world. I'm not sure that's a good thing actually, but uh, you know, I think, I think using, you know, music as a, as a constantly available resource is not necessarily, uh, well, actually, I, mean, I, just, I don't know. I, you know, I really, I would like to see data on it because it may be a fantastic thing for people's well-being and, uh, and 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 um, enjoyment of life, but it might not be. And um, certainly, in terms of enjoyment of music, I mean, I you know I grew up with recordings existing, but Tchaikovsky didn't, and Mozart certainly didn't. You heard music when you saw it played live. The rest of the time, there was no music. So um, one wonders what the best environment for you know that level for properly properly appreciating what there is. Um, you know, I grew up without uh, video, but, um, but now anything you want is available uh, within, within minutes. And uh, do we appreciate films in the same way? Um, is it special? Is it, and does that matter? I mean, these are good questions. I don't know. Well, they're not good questions. They're my <laughs> questions, but the... Uh, well, it's, it's not as a worshipful ritual, you know, before VHS, which is very much an 80s thing, you know, that changed all kinds of things. You could curate your own, curate your own obsessions, whereas before you had to wait for films to come to your local cinema and sit in this physical space and, right. and, and absorb these, these films. And, I, you know, I remember my grandfather, who was not a musically inclined person, could play the accordion and harmonica because that was, he, he knew a, a pre-radio version of America. And I'm not saying pre-technological, but he was a rural guy and there were no radio stations in his part of Kansas in the middle of America. So he would create his own music. And maybe his, in its own way, his relationship with music was more sophisticated than mine. And then, you know, I remember traveling 
through the Middle East not that long ago, 17 years ago, with the Walkman that was broken, and suddenly I was attuned to the sounds around me. Um, and it was just it was just a different way of reacting. Uh, I'm, this is almost like its own soundtrack. I remember I, I managed a band in college, and I had a friend of mine um, put together a um, sort of a warm-up track for the band to get sort of the audience tuned in. Well, my friend was falling in love, and so he had all these romantic songs that were somehow not communicating to the audience, and so the audience was sort of lulled into this um, relaxed state when, in fact, this was a sort of a heavy grunge band coming on. And so I think that there's ways... We used to be music creators even if we weren't very good, and now we're music curators. And even more so, we're music curators for ourselves. We're, we're curating um, soundtracks that are exclusive to ourselves, that nobody else participates in this, that we're grabbing music from other sources, and there's no public utility here, that we're just sort of creating um, ways of scoring specific experiences, which is interesting and, and weird at the same time, because I think there's an extent to which the fact that my grandfather had to play a very poor accordion to enliven a, a, an otherwise dull weekend, he couldn't do it in the dentist's chair, but still, uh, he had to ha have a more active participation in his own score in his own life soundtrack. Do people still make um, mixtapes? I wrote about this recently because I had a very, I'm a 90s kid. Um, I'm slightly older than you, uh, younger than you. And uh, so mi I, I came of age in the 90s when mixtapes were very, were its, its own language, you know, it was, it was its own type of communication. Yes, people make mixes. My, my nephew who just started college, he's gonna be 19 next spring. Um, gave me a, a mix, which was interesting, but it was sort of a way of curating what he was listening to, whereas sure. the mixtape itself, it was dictated by this 30 minutes on each side stretch of tape right. that you had to make the songs fit, and you had to, and there was no skipping back and forth, right? And so I think that 20 years on, 25 years on, a mixtape is a different monster, that you can create music in a very efficient way that somebody can personally curate, that they can quickly identify the, the, the eight out of the 20 songs that they like the best and just skip to those or even pull out the files and, and remix. But then I think we need to figure out how to uh, crossfade them so that they don't skip, that they all... Well, well maybe that's an app you know, that, that forces you to listen to the whole thing because I got a very interesting mixtape, um, I think it was in 1992, and the heavy music that immediately appealed to me um, was what I would have skipped to but it was like the Elvis Costello and you know the the other um, the Fishbone and and the more melodic and poppy type music that I grew to love, because I was forced to listen to it in between the heavy riff centric songs that I normally would have been attracted to, right. and so I was forced to cultivate an appreciation for music I might otherwise have not had the patience for, and so who knows how that manifests itself now. Right, right, right. Can I um, take a break for like a well, actually, we can we can wind down okay. because we've been going on for an hour and forty minutes. It's probably t almost twice as long as, as as we should be going. So, tell tell me, but you know, for the sake of the audience, how can we find you? How can we find your original compositions, your song workshops, uh, things like that? How do we find Rolf Kent in the universe? Uh, song workshops, you'll just have to you know email me or something. Um, I'm easily found at rolfkent.com which is, uh, don't forget the silent E in the middle, so that's R-O-L-F-E-K-E-N-T. The one difference between me, I'm a four-letter Rolf, you're a five-letter Rolf. That's right, that's right. Uh, Rolfkin.com, I think I'm also at um, 
at Rolf Kent on Twitter and um, at the Zen Effect. I think it also exists. Um, yeah. In the song workshops, you have to be local for that, right? Are there virtual song workshops? Uh, the, you do have to be local for that, although uh, I think the, the story shop, someone is going to start doing the story shops in New York, but, uh, but the story shops are the same thing and you have to be, uh, you have to be on my list little list. However, if there, was a, if, if there was an interesting number of people who are curious about it, um, you know, I'm happy to publish the assignments and people can uh, do the assignments at their, uh, they can organize their own groups. Uh, so from Los Angeles, uh, Rolf Kent, thank you very much for sharing a little bit about your life and creative process. Thank you. It's been fun. This has been the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. More about everything that was just mentioned in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. Again, if you want to get a free sample of the music you're hearing right now, Rolf Kent's Zen Effect, you can do that by checking out the show notes, rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can email me with questions or insights at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow with research support from Jan Futterman. Music is by Rolf Kent himself, as well as my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel, who also designed my logo. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of the Deviate with Rolf Potts podcast. <laughs>